Section 21 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, Part 1. 1749 to 1832, Germany's Greatest Writer, by Friedrich Henry Hedge. 1. The Man. Genius of the supreme order presupposes a nature of equal scope as the prime condition of its being. The gardens of Adonis require little earth, but the oak will not flourish in a tub, and the wine of Tokay is the product of no greenhouse, nor gotten of sour grapes. Given a genuine great poet, you will find a greater man behind, in whom, among others, these virtues predominate. Courage, generosity, truth. Preeminent among the poets of the modern world stands Goethe chief of his own generation, challenging comparison with the greatest of all time. His literary activity embraces a span of nigh seventy years and a life of more than fourscore, beginning significantly enough with a poem on Christ's descent into hell, his earliest extant composition, and ending with Faust's, that is, man's, ascent into heaven. The rank of a writer, his spiritual imports to humankind, may be inferred from the number and worth of the writings of which he has furnished the topic and occasion. When kings build, says Schiller, speaking of Kant's commentators, the draymen have plenty to do. Dante and Shakespeare have created whole libraries through the interests inspired by their writings. The Goethe literature, so-called, though scarce fifty years have elapsed since the poet's death, already numbers its hundreds of volumes. I note in this man, first of all, as a literary phenomenon, the unexampled fact of supreme excellence in several quite distinct provinces of literary action. Had we only his minor poems, he would rank as the first of lyrists. Had he written only Faust, he would have been the first of philosophic poets. Had he written only Hermann and Dorothea, the sweetest idolist, if only the Marchen, the subtlest of allegorists. Had he written never a verse but only prose, he would hold the highest place among the prose writers of Germany. And lastly, had he written only on scientific subjects, in that line also, in the field of science, he would be, as he is, an acknowledged leader. Noticeable in him also is the combination of extraordinary genius with extraordinary fortune. A magnificent person, a sound physique, inherited wealth, high social position, official dignity, with 83 years of earthly existence, compose the framework of this illustrious life. Behind the author, behind the poet, behind the world-renowned genius, a not unreasonable curiosity seeks the original man, the human individual, as he walked among men, his manner of being, his characteristics as shown in the converse of life, in what soil grew the flowers and ripened the fruits which have been the delight and the ailment of nations. In proportion, of course, to the eminence attained by a writer, in proportion to the worth of his works, to their hold on the world, is the interest felt in his personality and behavior, in the incidents of his life. Unfortunately, our knowledge of the person is not always proportioned to the luster of the name. Of the two great poets to whom the world's unrepealable verdict has assigned the foremost place in their several kinds, we know in one case absolutely nothing, and next to nothing in the other. To the question, who sung the wrath of Achilles and the wanderings of the much-versed Odysseus? Tradition answers with a name to which no faintest shadow of a person corresponds. To the question who composed Hamlet and Othello, history answers with a person so indistinct that recent speculation has dared to question the agency of Shakespeare in those creations. 
what would not the old scholiasts have given for satisfactory proofs of the existence of a homer identical with the author of the iliad and the odyssey what would not the shakespeare clubs give for one more authentic antidote of the world's greatest dramatist of goethe we know more i mean of his externals than of any other writer of equal note this is due in part to his wide relations official and other with his contemporaries to his large correspondence with people of note of which the documents have been preserved by the parties addressed to the interest felt in him by curious observers living in the day of his greatness it is due in part also to the fact that unlike the greatest of his predecessors he flourished in an all-communicating all-recording age and partly it is due to autobiographical notices embracing important portions of his history two seemingly opposite factors limiting and qualifying the one the other determined the course and topics of his life one was the aim which he proposed to himself as the governing principle and purpose of his being to perfect himself to make the most of the nature which god had given him the other was a constitutional tendency to come out of himself to lose himself in objects especially in natural objects so that in the study of nature to which he devoted a large part of his life he seems not so much a scientific observer as a chosen confidant to whom the discerning mother reveal her secrets in no greatest genius are all talents self-derived countless influences mould our intellect and mould our heart one of these and often one of the most potent is heredity consciously or unconsciously for good or for evil physically and mentally the father and the mother are in the child as indeed all his ancestors are in every man of goethe's father we only know what the son himself has told us in his memoirs a man of austere presence from whom goethe as he tells us inherited his bodily stature and his serious treatment of life von vater hab ich die statur des lebens ernstes führen by profession a lawyer but without practice living in grim seclusion amid his books and collections a man of solid acquirements and large culture who had travelled in italy and first awakened in wolfgang the longing for that land a man of ample means inhabiting a stately mansion for the rest a stiff narrow-minded fussy pedant with small toleration for any methods or aims but his own who while he appreciated the superior gifts of his son was obstinately bent on guiding them in strict professional grooves and teased him with the friction of opposing wills the opposite in most respects of this stately and pedantic worthy was the frau rothen his youthful wife young enough to have been his daughter a jocund exuberant nature a woman to be loved one who blessed society with her presence and possessed uncommon gifts of discourse she was but eighteen when wolfgang was born a companion to him and his sister cornelia one in whom they were sure to find sympathy and ready indulgence goethe was indebted to her as he tells us for his joyous spirit and his narrative talent von mutterken die fronatur und lust zu fabulieren outside of the poet's household the most important figure in the circle of his childish acquaintance was his mother's father from whom he had his name johann wolfgang textor the schulteis or chief magistrate of the city from him goethe seems to have inherited the superstition of which some curious examples are recorded in his life he shared with napoleon and other remarkable men says von muller the conceit that little mischances are prophetic of greater evils on a journey to baden-baden with a friend his carriage was upset and his companion slightly injured he thought it a bad omen and instead of proceeding to baden-baden chose another watering-place for his summer resort 
If in his almanac there happened to be a blot on any date, he feared to undertake anything important on the day so marked. He had noted certain fatal days. One of these was the 22nd of March. On that day, he had lost a valued friend. On that day, the theater to which he had devoted so much time and labor was burned, and on that day, curiously enough, he died. He believed in oracles, and as Rousseau threw stones at a tree to learn whether or no he was to be saved, the hitting or not hitting the tree was to be the sign. So Goethe tossed a valuable pocket knife into the river lawn to ascertain whether he would succeed as a painter. If behind the bushes which bordered the stream he saw the knife plunge, it should signify success. If not, he would take it as an omen of failure. Rousseau was careful, he tells us, to choose a stout tree and to stand very near. Goethe, more honest with himself, adopted no such precaution. The plunge of the knife was not seen, and the painter's career was abandoned. Wordsworth's saying, the child is the father of the man, a saying which owes its vitality more to its form than its substance, is not always verified, or its truth is not always apparent in the lives of distinguished men. I find not much in Goethe, the child prophetic of Goethe the man. But the singer and the seeker, the two main tendencies of his being, are already apparent in early life. Of moral traits, the most conspicuous in the child is a power of self-control, a moral heroism, which secured to him in afterlife a natural leadership unattainable by mere intellectual supremacy. An instance of this self-control is recorded among the anecdotes of his boyhood. At one of the lessons which he shared with other boys, the teacher failed to appear. The young people awaited his coming for a while, but toward the close of the hour most of them departed, leaving behind three who were especially hostile to Goethe. These, he says, thought to torment, to mortify, and to drive me away. They left me a moment, and returned with rods taken from a broom which they had cut to pieces. I perceived their intention, and supposing the expiration of the hour to be near, I immediately determined to make no resistance until the clock should strike. Unmercifully, thereupon, they began to scourge in the cruelest manner my legs and calves. I did not stir, but soon felt that I had miscalculated the time, and that such pain greatly lengthens the minutes. When the hour expired, his superior activity enabled him to master all three and to pin them to the ground. In later years, the same zeal of self-discipline which prompted the child to exercise himself in bearing pain impelled the man to resist and overcome constitutional weaknesses by force of will. A student of architecture, he conquered a tendency to giddiness by standing on pinnacles and walking on narrow rafters over perilous abysses. In like manner, he overcame the ghostly terrors instilled in the nursery by midnight visits to churchyards and uncanny places. To real peril, to fear of death, he seems to have had that native insensibility so notable always in men of genius, in whom the conviction of a higher destiny begets the feeling of a charmed life, such as Plutarch records of the first Caesar in peril of shipwreck on the river Anio, in the French campaign, 1793, in which Goethe accompanied the Duke of Weimar against the armies of the Republic, a sudden impulse of scientific curiosity prompted him, in spite of warnings and remonstrances, to experiment on what is called the cannon fever. For this purpose he rode to a place in which he was exposed to a crossfire of the two armies and coolly watched the sensations experienced in that place of peril. Command of himself, acquired by long and systematic discipline, gave him that command over others which he exercised in several memorable instances. Coming from a ball one night, a young man fresh from the university, he saw that a fire had broken out in the Hudengasse, and that people were standing about helpless and confused without a leader. He immediately jumped from his carriage, and full-dressed as he was, in silk, stockings, and pumps, organized on the spot a fire brigade which averted a dangerous conflagration. 
on another occasion voyaging in the mediterranean he quelled a mutiny on board an italian ship when captain and mates were powerless and the vessel drifting on the rocks by commanding sailors and passengers to fall on their knees and pray to the virgin adopting the idiom of their religion as well as their speech of which he was the master as a student first at leipzig then at strasburg including the years from seventeen sixty six to seventeen seventy one he seems not to have been a very diligent attendant on the lectures in either university and to have profited little by professional instruction in compliance with the wishes of his father who intended him for a jurist he gave some time to the study of law but on the whole the principal gain of those years was derived from intercourse with distinguished intellectual men and women whose acquaintance he cultivated and the large opportunities of social life in strasbourg occurred the famous love passage with frederic brion which terminated so unhappily at the time and so fortunately in the end for both goethe has been blamed for not marrying frederic his real blame consists in the heedlessness with which in the beginning of their acquaintance he surrendered himself to the charms of her presence thereby engaging her affection without a thought of the consequences to either besides the dissolution which showed him when he came fairly to face the question that he did not love her sufficiently to justify marriage there were circumstances material economical which made it practically impossible her suffering in the separation great as it was so great indeed as to cause a dangerous attack of bodily disease could not outweigh the pangs which he endured in his penitent contemplation of the consequences of his folly the next five years were spent partly in frankfurt and partly in wetzlar partly in the forced exercise of his profession but chiefly in literary labors and the use of the pencil which for a time disputed with the pen the devotion of the poet artist they may be regarded as perhaps the most fruitful certainly the most growing years of his life they gave birth to Goetz von berlichingen and the sorrows of werther to the first inception of faust and to many of his sweetest lyrics it was during this period that he made the acquaintance of charlotte buff the heroine of the sorrows of werther from whom he finally tore himself away leaving wetzler when he discovered that their growing interest in each other was endangering her relationship with kessner her betrothed in those years also he formed a matrimonial engagement with elizabeth schoneman lely the rupture of which i must think was a real misfortune for the poet it came about by no fault of his her family had from the first opposed themselves to the match on the ground of social disparity for even in the mercantile frankfurt rank was strongly marked and the goethe's though respectable people were beneath the schoenmans in the social scale goethe's genius went for nothing with madame schoenman she wanted for her daughter an aristocratic husband not a literary one one who had wealth in possession and not merely as goethe had in prospect how far lili was influenced by her mother's and brother's representations it is impossible to say however she showed herself capricious was sometimes cold or seemed so to him while favoring the advances of others goethe was convinced that she did not entertain for him that devoted love without which he felt that their union could not be a happy one they separated but on her deathbed she confessed to a friend that all she was intellectually and morally she owed to him in seventeen seventy five our poet was invited by the young duke of saxe weimar karl august whose acquaintance he had made at frankfurt and at mentz his junior by two or three years to establish himself in civil service at the grand ducal court the father who had other views for his son and was not much inclined to trust in princes objected many wondered some blamed goethe himself appears to have wavered with painful indecision and at last to have followed a mysterious impulse rather than a clear conviction or deliberate choice his heidelberg friend and hostess sought still to detain him 
when the last express from Weimar drove up to the door. To her he replied in the words of his own Egmont, Say no more. Goaded by invisible spirits, the sun-steeds of time run away with the light chariot of our destiny. There is nothing for it but to keep our courage, hold tight the reins, and guide the wheels now right, now left, avoiding a stone here, a fall there. Whither away? Who knows? Scarcely one remembers whence he came. It does not appear that he ever repented this most decisive step of his life journey, nor does there appear to have been any reason why he should. A position, an office of some kind, he needs must have. Even now, the life of a writer by profession, with no function but that of literary composition, is seldom a prosperous one. In Goethe's day, when literature was far less remunerative than it is in ours, it was seldom practicable. Unless he had chosen to be maintained by his father, some employment besides that of bookmaking was an imperative necessity. The alternative of that which was offered, the one his father would have chosen, was that of a plotting jurist in a country where forensic pleading was unknown, and where the lawyer's profession offered no scope for any of the higher talents with which Goethe was endowed. On the whole, it was a happy chance that called him to the little capital of the little grand duchy of Saxe-Weimar. If the state was one of the petty dimensions, a kind of pocket kingdom, like so many of the principalities of Germany, it nevertheless included some of the fairest localities, and one at least of the most memorable in Europe, the Wurtburg, where Luther translated the Bible, where St. Elizabeth dispensed the blessings of her life, where the Menesingers are said to have held their poetic tournament. Heinrich von Ofterdingen, Wolfram von Eisenbach. It also included the University of Jena, which at that time numbered some of the foremost men of Germany among its professors. It was a miniature state and a miniature town. One wonders that Goethe, who would have shown the foremost star in Berlin or Vienna, could content himself with so narrow a field. But Vienna and Berlin did not call him until it was too late, until patronage was needless, and Weimar did. A miniature state, but so much the greater his power and freedom and the opportunity of beneficent action. No prince was ever more concerned to promote in every way the welfare of his subjects than Karl August, and in all his works undertaken for his purpose, Goethe was his foremost counselor and aid. The most important were either suggested by him or executed under his direction. Had he never written a poem or given the world a single literary composition, he would still have led, as a Weimar official, a useful and beneficent life. But the knowledge of the world and of business, the social and other experience gained in this way, was precisely the training which he needed, and which every poet needs, for the broadening and deepening and perfection of his art. Friedrich von Müller, in his valuable treatise of Goethe as a man of affairs, tells us how he traversed every portion of the country to learn what advantage might be taken of topographical peculiarities, what provision made for local necessities. Everywhere, on hilltops crowned with primeval forests, in the depths of gorges and shafts, nature met her favorite with friendly advances and revealed to him many a desired secret. Whatever was privately gained in this way was applied to public uses. He endeavored to infuse new life into the mining business and to make himself familiar with all its technical requirements. For that end, he revived his chemical experiments. New roads were built. Hydraulic operations were conducted on more scientific principles. Fertile meadows were won from the river Saal by systematic drainage, and in many a struggle with nature, an intelligently persistent will obtained the victory. End of section 21.